Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Hey, so good to see you this morning. Please keep those conversations going after the service. Um, what a brilliant message from our senior pastor, Jason Ellsmore, last week, hey? Who was here for that? Like, stick your hand up high, because I, okay, good. So, in, in, I, I really, you know, there's a, there's a thing in Gateway about wanting to honour each other, and I honour him by, by preaching to the subject that he told you I was going to preach to this morning, and, and to honour him even more, he's a prop guy, right? So, I've got some giant oversized props backstage here that I'm going to go and get. I thought that'd be funnier. <laughs> Were you really here last week? If, if that just made no sense at all, um, talk to me afterwards and I'll explain it to you. I'm not going to say anything about it from up front here. Anyway, moving right along. That went really badly. Um, just let me... Good morning, everyone. Welcome uh, to Gateway Redlands this morning. It's so good to see you. For those who have been praying uh, for me and my family, we so appreciate it. The last piece to come together for us to really feel settled uh, here in, back in Brisbane was uh, Brooke getting a job down here. She goes to Toowoomba tomorrow, as she has been over the last number of months, uh, to keep work going up there. She's a midwife working in the Toowoomba-based hospital. When she goes tomorrow, this is the last time that she goes, because she got a job at Logan Hospital, a permanent position. Um, so we're so thankful. And we can, just, we can just sense God's hand in that, that, that this, is, this is the place for her to work, more than just a job more than just income, but this is a place that God has called her to be. We, you know, we believe that, that God calls us to the places that we, where you will be this time tomorrow. God's called you to that place. And as much as he's called me to pastor this church, they're, they're equal, right? As much as he's called Melody to, to go overseas and, and be a missionary, he's called you as well. Um, and so we believe that for Brooke and, and expecting uh, great ministry and mission to happen through, uh, through that opportunity. We're doing this series called Our House, and, and as Jason said last week, when things are important to us, when we value things and we're passionate about them, we make a plan with the expectation that making a plan will make those things turn out really good. We make plans for what we value. Let, let me give you some examples that I think you can think of straight away. If you're going to build a house, it's really foolish to do it without plans. I'm a big fan of grand designs. Anyone else watch that show? I remember this one where a guy tried to build a houseboat and he had no plan. And he just kept going and going and going and it ended up being a flop. And that boat washed up on some shore of the UK and it was a complete wreck and it was, a, it was just a complete mess because he didn't make a plan. If you're going to go on holidays, who's the sort of person that loves to sit down at a computer and work out a minute-by-minute minute itinerary? Maybe not minute-by-minute, minute, okay? Yeah, there's a hand already going up. I see Michael back there. There's a few, yeah, Danny, that would be right. Um, I work with Danny, so I know that's true. But if you're, if you're going to go on holidays, it's, it's wise to make a plan. I've learnt that the hard way. If you're going to prepare a meal, another thing I've learned the hard way, if you're going to prepare a meal, you have to have some kind of plan for them. You have to have, you know, especially if people are coming over for dinner and it has to be ready by a certain time and you're going to cook a curry that needs to sit on the stove for five hours, it's good to start at five hours before people come. That's just a plan. It makes sense. If you're going to, if you're going to start a business, if you're going to run a business, you need to have a plan. You know this. We know this. The things that we value and the things that we want to achieve in life it works out best when you have a plan. Now, I felt, as we've done this series, I felt a little bit put out when I, when I think about this because when, when I think about making plans, I think of my wife, who is very much a planner. She does like to sit down 
with pen and paper. When she always says to me, we need to sit down and plan this. I say, I always make a joke. I say, do we have to sit down? Can we actually stand up and do it? Or can we, can we lie down and do it or something else? Like, why do we have to sit down? Because she wants to get out pen and paper and go through all the intricate details of the plan. Whereas I like to be a bit more spontaneous. I like to plan on the fly. Like if I'm cooking dinner and I'm, I'm cooking a meal, I like to throw in more cumin than the recipe says. Cumin, it's delicious. I like to throw in more salt than it says because I have that sort of, sort of taste. I like to add things. When I go overseas, I like to be spontaneous. No, I don't want to be locked into an itinerary. I learned that the hard way because you can miss flights and you can miss trains if you don't have that locked away. But, but, the, but it's still to the point that there is some kind of plan forming in my mind, even though I do it on the fly. Like, I am still thinking about it, even though I'm not the sort of person that sits down and does a step-by-step pre-plan to the thing I'm about to do. And you might be like me, but if you are, you know, and you've learned in your life that for the important things in life, you need to give good thought and attention and invest some, some thought and attention into making sure those things go well. So whatever, whatever sort of personality you are and however, however we approach things with planning, whether it be sitting down and doing step-by-step or, or thinking about it beforehand, we all know that the things that are important in our lives we need to make a plan for to make sure those things have the best chance of going well. And as Jace talked about last week, crucial, uh, t- t- crucial, uh, it's crucial for our family, when we value our family, that we need to make a plan. We need to think about, where do, where do we want to be in 20 years? Where do we want to be when our kids grow up and move out? What, what do we want them to remember about home? We need to be intentional. We need to invest time and thought. And this morning, what I want to talk about is crucial to a great family is a great marriage. I think that would be the, the keyest of most key ingredients. If you're going to make a plan for a great marriage, I think you'll get, you've got a really good chance of getting a great family. Great marriage often equals great family. And for those who are married among us, if you, if you say you're married, well, I would expect that you would have had to have uh, a day like this, a wedding day. Maybe it looked flash like this. That, I, I look at that photo and I just go, man, that looks super expensive. I don't want a wedding like that. That just looks too over the top uh, for me. If I was doing a wedding again, it'd be in the backyard um, and it'd be really low key. Just a lot of people who we love and spend money on that rather than all the little things uh, that go into a wedding. And if you're married, you know about all those little things. I actually reckon there's great wisdom, by God's grace, there's great wisdom in having the next thing that a couple do after they decide to get married, the next thing they have to do is plan a wedding together. There's wisdom in that. You want to work out if you're compatible? Plan a wedding together. That is one of the most intense periods of life that I can remember. I'm glad it's done and I'm glad I'll never have to do it again. Having been involved in many, many weddings over the years, I've witnessed so much planning for the wedding day, and it can get ridiculous. You can really tell on the day when you do a rehearsal for the wedding how much planning has gone in because the, I, don't want to be, I don't want to be sexist, but it's often the bride who just wants to go through your, your order of service really with a fine-tooth comb and make sure everything's squared away. But there's a lot of planning that goes into the wedding day. You want it to go off without a hitch. You don't want to do the thing that I talked about with that spontaneous, oh, let's just see what happens on the day. That'd be really dumb for a wedding. I remember one couple who asked me to marry them. They sent me an email. They were sort of outside of the church. They were like related to someone who I knew. But they changed their minds when my reply was, yeah, I'm very happy to do your wedding. No problem. I say yes to everybody. Accept that. Part of my condition is that you need to do a minimum of five one-hour sessions of marriage prep. I call it marriage prep because I'm not a counsellor. I stopped calling it pre-marriage counselling, called it marriage prep. 
One of my conditions is these five one-hour sessions of marriage prep. Five one-hour sessions, free. I wasn't going to charge. I'm not allowed to. Five hours of time, a little bit of homework in between, all of those hours going to the wedding, this couple got back and said, oh, we're going to decline. We're not interested in doing marriage preparation. I kind of thought, well, you're spending so much time and effort on this wedding day that you, that you want to be perfect, that you want to look like everything. There's no mistakes. There's no errors. There's no problems. There's no issues. You're, you're making sure that it's going to be the most perfect and beautiful day of your life, but you're not willing to spend any time at all investing in every day thereafter. Something is wrong with that picture. The most important wedding I've been involved with was my own, and I'm embarrassed to put this photo up. I feel, I feel like I look at that and I go, Sam, would you eat something? You look like you'd live off bread. I was a bachelor days, I probably did just live off bread and peanut butter, but um, that's, that's my wedding day. Um, and I know, I know, and I said before, my wife is a, a really step-by-step planner, and that, that was hard work. But what I really treasure, I, I actually don't remember much. Like when I looked at these photos, I, you can really date it. Like look at the shoes I'm wearing, look at the suit I'm wearing. This is so clearly another era of fashion that probably in 20 years' time will come back around again and this photo will look cool, but right now it looks really dorky. My wife looks beautiful. I mean, that, that doesn't age. That's, that's perfect, but me. Anyway, um, I can't remember the details. I can't remember the centerpieces we had. I can't remember any of that. It's really... The, the, I can remember some of it. That's not true. But what I, what I remember and treasure so much are the sessions we had with our counsellor in marriage preparation. 18 years later, it'll be 18 years next month, that is still paying dividends. The stuff we learned as we invested some time and money into our marriage and not just our wedding, that stuff is still paying off today. Sort of planning that we're talking about around marriage and family, this is true for every human being. Every human being who is living and breathing or who has ever lived and breathed, if they wanted a great family, if they wanted a great marriage, even a great life, they had to plan for it. Everyone has to plan for it. You have to invest thought and attention into it. And that's true for anyone, no matter the context, no matter the belief, no matter the faith, no matter the religion, no matter the worldview. If they wanted a great marriage and a great family, they would have to plan for it. But my my question today is, what about marriage for people who claim to follow Jesus? What's the blueprint? What's the plan for success? Is there anything, should there be anything remarkably different about Christian marriage? Well, as you look to Scripture, you see marriage is woven and it's this really clear thread throughout the whole of Scripture. The first wedding happens in the first few chapters of the Bible. And the intimate relationship between a man and a woman, and and, uh, sometimes it gets beyond just one man and one woman, it threads through it all from the best case scenario to the worst case scenario. It's there all through Scripture. So it's a biblical idea. We're not going to do the full, uh, a full survey of all the verses of Scripture today. We're going to land in Ephesians 5 to look at what is, as we consider planning for a great marriage, what is the blueprint? What is the blueprint for us who follow Jesus? What should our marriages look like? Before we do that, though, I just want to make a few comments because I am totally aware as I stand here today, and having only been here for a little under six months, I don't know a lot of you super well. But what I do know is for, for some of you, marriage can be a real trigger for pain. It could be that your marriage right now isn't great. 
It could be that there's pain from the past. It could be that in, in your childhood, your parents separated and divorced. It could be that you sit here today as a divorcee. It could be you sit here today as a widow, you've lost a husband or you've lost a wife through death. And as we talk about marriage, or even as you saw on the Facebook post, you thought, I might not even go because it's just not relevant to me. And in fact, it triggers some pain. Or maybe as you thought this morning, you're you're thinking, Sam's going to talk about marriage. How can I just quickly just shuffle out the back door? I also think for those who are single, I almost feel like every time we talk about marriage, I want to apologize to people who are single because I really don't feel like the church generally and culturally treats you very well. I think if someone's single, rather than going, you know, Paul writes about that and and God bless you if that's what God's called you to, we sort of say something like, it's okay, God's got someone for you. And there's a pressure applied, like there's something wrong if, if one day you don't get married. And then if you are married, oh, when are you going to have kids? These pressures that we apply culturally, and, and I don't think that's very sensitive. I don't think it's very fair. And, and I'm, I'm sorry that if that's been true for you for those who are single. So it's with that awareness and with that, 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 that well, I'm going to pray in a minute for the Holy Spirit to give us all some sensitivity to that, that we would be a community that honours everybody, no matter their marital state. But what I hope you'll see in this passage as well, when we, when we lodge it in the context, the passage that we're about to talk through, that we'll actually see that there is stuff in here for all of us no matter our marital status. Let me pray before we do that. And God, we thank you for the gift of marriage. Whatever, whatever is said about marriage today and whatever the different views are on marriage, we know, God, that you created it. You designed it. You gifted it to humanity. You said it is not good for man to be alone and so you made woman and you said it is good when they came together. God, we thank you that we, we can learn about your view on marriage through the scripture. In fact, as we'll see today, The picture of marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel, a picture of Jesus, your love for your church and the church's love for you. Help us this morning, God, to understand marriage in that context for all of us, Lord, not not just the married people, but for all of us, whatever our status is right now, whatever it's been in the past, God, to uh, understand your great love for your bride, the church. God, help us to grow in sensitivity to those who are single. Help us to grow in sensitivity to those who have been through circumstances that that have caused pain. Help us to be sensitive. Help us to be an encouragement. Help us to speak words of life and words of faith to those people and not, Lord, stop our mouths from from what comes out sort of naturally to get out of an awkward situation like there's someone for you or you'll have kids one day or whatever, God. Just help us to grow in that sensitivity, we pray, and let today's message help. In that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. I'm going to read the passage from the screen here. You can read along in your own Bible or on your phone or you can look at the screen. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Just, let's just pause for a moment and all say, yep, when we think of marriage, this is a profound mystery. Can we all say, amen? amen. It is a mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Anyone, anyone is like stirring in their seat and churning a bit when you read stuff like that? I mean, like when you read wives submit to your husbands in everything, that's just so culturally inappropriate. That's so just culturally wrong. And, and I've got to admit that I stir a bit in that when I read that. I mean, I grew up, I, I'm, I'm the son of divorced parents. I grew up mainly with my mom and she, she, was, she was a great mom. So this whole submission thing, submit to your husband and in everything, it, it's kind of, kind of, Stirs us a bit, I think, and, and that, that's probably appropriate until, until we understand this passage in two contexts. The first one is the scriptural context. Sorry, the second one is the scriptural context, and the first one is the social context. So let's, let's just take a moment to think about the social context and understand what's going on in that Roman world at the time when Paul writes this to understand that this was revolutionary, what Paul was writing here. So Paul is writing into a Greco-Roman culture. Women were nothing in this culture. Women had no status. They had no identity. They had no purpose other than for their husband's pleasure and to produce children and to raise them. That was it. There was no voting. There was no job. There was no career path. Women were slaves to their husbands. It was death for a woman not to be married, literally death. Wives were the legal property of their husbands. So things like murder and all that sort of thing, well, that was fine because the husband could make the call. They were there to make kids, for the husband to enjoy sex, nothing more than that really. And when the latter got boring, the husband would wander. And that was totally okay as well. It was the husband's right. So we need to understand that what Paul writes about here is a radical reconception and a radical revisioning of marriage. You've got to understand that when the guy got up or the girl got up to read this letter from Paul, there would have been gasps through the crowd. Are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. This relationship between husband and wife, we've understood it to be this, but now you are talking about this. This is ridiculous. This would have been one of the most countercultural things about living in light of the gospel for the church. This revisioning and reconception of marriage. And I want us to understand that what might now at first reading seem so old and outdated now in 2021, back then was radically new, radically new. I don't think we can do enough identification or putting ourselves in the shoes of the people around to understand how much this would have rocked the community of faith in a positive way when it was first read out. I want to suggest to you today that even in today's context, this is not old and outdated, but still as radical and revolutionary as it was that day. That's the social context. I'll come back to that a little bit as we unpack the passage, but we, we need to understand the scriptural context as well. So this is a part of chapter five. The chapters and verses weren't there when it was originally written. Uh, but in chapter five, Paul is, is casting a vision 
for the Christian community. Let's just read uh, verse 1 of chapter 5 to understand the theme of where Paul is going. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the thought that Paul has in his mind before he gets to marriage. This is the community of faith in this Greco-Roman world that is so stratified and and, and the rich and the poor and, and all of that sort of stuff. Here is what it means to be a part of the community that belongs to Jesus. This is a radical, countercultural community that is meant to be a light to the world. That's what is in Paul's heart. So the context is, is, is this, the, the, the instruction for the entire community of faith. So this isn't just about marriage, what Paul is writing here. It's, it's for all of us to walk in the way of love. I love that phrase. To walk in the way of love. What's the way of love? Well, it's, the, it's this way. It's the way of Jesus who gave himself up for us. If you want to know what the way of love is, it's not just lovey-dovey, oh yeah, I love you, I love you, I love you too, all that sort of stuff. No, no. The way of love is the way of Jesus who gave himself up for us. Here's how the community of faith that belongs to Jesus, his, his church should operate. All of us walking in the way of self-giving love. That's what should define the church. That's what should define us. People should look and go, man, they might not use this phrase, but what, they're full of self-giving love. They hold the, 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 the enjoyment and the life and, and the prosperity of the other more than they do themselves. They want each other to flourish and they do everything they can to, to make that happen. Self-giving love. As countercultural as that was then, how countercultural is that now? This is the big picture of what Paul is writing about before he gets to marriage. And, and I wonder if, if, you don't have to close your eyes, but if you were to close your eyes and imagine what this would look like in your workplace. Imagine what this self-giving love would look like in your school, in your neighbourhood. Imagine, and, and, and my prayer is that you don't have to imagine this too much because it's already becoming reality. Imagine what this would look like in our church. And as nice as the picture, like I've been around church for, for 23 years now, and as much as I would get up on a pulpit like this and talk about this, when I reflect on my own life and when I look around, I see as nice as this sounds, it's often so elusive for us. Because in each of us, there is this battle between the old way and the new way of love. In our relationships with each other, the main enemy of self-giving love is sinful self-centeredness. And we can extend this to marriage and say, the main enemy of marriage is sinful self-centeredness. This, if you were going to broad brush all of the issues that come up to destroy a marriage, if you want to broad brush everything that tears a marriage apart, that broad brush stroke would be sinful self-centeredness. When I honestly stop and think, and I'm, I'm the first to admit this, when I, when I honestly stop and think about the moments of tension in my marriage, in fact, if I draw that out and I think more broadly about my relationship with my kids, when I think about the tense moments, they always, often if not always, center on the moments where I wasn't getting what I wanted. They're moments of self-focus and self-serving. I'm bitter and twisted because Brooke didn't give me what I wanted or my kids interrupted a moment that I was trying to have for Sam. That's not self-giving love. That's sinful self-centeredness. 
And what's the way out of this? How, how, do we move, how do we move out of this? How do we stop this from destroying our marriages, destroying our relationships, destroying our churches? Well, it, it's understanding that gospel relationships are built on self-giving love. They're built on self-giving love. This is, this is what uh, distinguishes Christian marriage and Christian relationships from other relationships, is that we are, we are built on self-giving love. The way of love is like Jesus who gave himself up for us. This is the way of Jesus, to love and serve the other, not just be self-serving and self-loving. And relationships where this is mutually shared, where both husband and wife are, are, are trying to love each other like this, that's the vision Paul has for marriage. That's the vision Paul has for the church. And when this is not shared, there is destruction. When we think of marriage, we need to understand that great marriages happen when couples move from sinful self-centeredness to self-giving love. Now let's jump back into Paul's vision for marriage, Jesus' vision for marriage. We're going to see as we look at this passage that actually the gospel is the pattern for marriage. The instructions to the wife. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. If we remember the context, we'd understand that as this is being read out, I think even at that first word, wives, as I try to put myself in the shoes of the church that first heard this, I think their ears have suddenly pricked up. All the women have gone, he's talking about us. What is this new faith? What is this new community? We're getting addressed we're being honoured with an address. This, this is next level for us. We've never experienced anything like this. And so when, when Paul goes on to write what he writes, there is this elevation of women to humanity. You've got to understand that. They've been down here and they're just being elevated to humanity. They are people because they haven't been before. They have identity. They have value. And Paul is saying because of what Jesus has done, because of the love of God expressed through Jesus, yes, you women have identity in this new community of faith. There is no male or female. What if, what if some read this as the opposite now because this gospel reality has become so ingrained, it's become so an ingrained part of our culture that we go to the other extreme where we want to elevate women above men. And I think that's, that's the other extreme. I'm in, I'm in no way condoning any sense of male domination here, especially in the home. I think, I think sometimes men would like it to, this passage to stop at that point. Say, so you need to submit to me. Now, that's, that's actually sinful self-centeredness, men. If that's how you treat your wife and say, you need to submit to me in everything, that's sinful self-centeredness. That's not self-giving love. We'll get to that. I'm jumping ahead of my own notes. I'm in no way condoning any sense of male domination, nor am I saying we need to elevate women above men. I'm only arguing from Scripture for a middle ground against any extreme reaction. Because in Christ, there is no male nor female. We are one. We are equal. Wives, wives, love your husband as the church loves Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. I would say in all ways, <laughs> except out and out worship. I would say, wives, don't worship your husbands. That, that's, that, as much as your husband might enjoy that, it's probably not good for him and it's probably not good for you either. So don't worship your husband. Like, Don't sing to him with your hands raised. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the takeaway. But here's, think about what the church does 
for Jesus. The, the church serves Jesus. Serve your husband. Love your, honor your husband. Grow in intimacy with your husband. Follow your husband, not blindly, but as he follows Jesus. And then, and then it's over for women in this passage. Paul gets on to the men. And there's a lot more to say to men than there is to women. Because remember, men have been enjoying this, this privileged position where everybody in the family serves them because they are the patriarch, they are the man. Now, in, in this reshaping and this revisioning of community, it doesn't look like this anymore. Instructions to the husband. Husbands, love your wives. Right there. It's already revolutionary. You went there to love your wife? She's there to produce children for you. She's just one of your slaves. Love your wives. And how am I to love my wife? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed it and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his, his body. And here's where things got really crazy. For those who first heard this teaching, there might have been some bold wives that whacked their husbands on the arm. That he's talking to you. I've said this a few times. I'm not sure we can fully put ourselves in the room that day. But I reckon the presence of the Holy Spirit was so palpable, was so tangible. And the love for Jesus must have been immense. Because this is such a radical reforming of society in this moment when this letter is being read to the church. What does Jesus do for the church? I mean, if, if, it's, if it's lopsided, well, we should feel that. Like, I, I often say when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm preaching at a wedding or giving the message, I'm not preaching at a wedding, giving the message, um, I, I, I say, okay, uh, bride, you're the church, and husband, you're Jesus. And at that moment, they sort of, oh, well, that's nice to hear. But from then on, it's like pressure applied to the husband. Pressure applied. Because this is the standard that the gospel holds us to. What does Jesus do for the church? You know, Jesus serves the church. Jesus serves the church even when the church isn't serving him. Jesus honors the church. Jesus honors the church even when the church isn't honoring him. Jesus puts the need of his people above his own needs even when they aren't putting his needs first. Jesus creates the opportunity and the context for the church to flourish and be all that it's meant to be. Husband, are you doing that for your wife? Are you creating a context where she can be all that she's meant to be for the kingdom of God? Not just letting her serve you so that you can be all that you're meant to be and she's there as your helper. That's not how Jesus treats us. Jesus creates a context where we can flourish and that's what husbands do for their wives. Again, my go-to wedding day message finishes like this. Bride, love and serve your husband. Groom, be the sort of man, lover and husband that your wife is thrilled to love and serve. And practical tips. This is, this is like big, big picture, right? How do we get, how do we, how do we, what's the plan here? How do we take this vision and this picture and, and really get into the plan? Well, I want to say, first of all, as a bit of a disclaimer, that this is hard work, creating this plan and then sticking to it. So anything I say here gets lost in, in, in a Sunday message. I, I remember Sam preached about marriage sometime a while ago. Like, I'm not expecting this to really uh, hit a mark for you in terms of making a plan. What I want to say is, Make a plan. <laughs> Let the takeaway be, make a plan. But here's a few tips. And these are, these are really practical and actually really simple. The first one is, say 
Speak about your love for your husband and wife every day. For Brooke and I, this means no matter what sort of day we've had, no matter what sort of tone uh, of our conversation has been, the moment before we turn the light off and our head hits the pillow, we say to each other, I love you and I love you too, and we give each other a kiss. Sometimes that's really hard. I love you, love you too. (laughs) I think sometimes it's even LYT, can't quite get the words out. LYT abbreviating, love you too, for those who are a bit slow. But saying that, it, it, just, it, just levels, it just levels again. We are not going to let this tension derail us from our love from each other. There is power in your words. And speaking those words, I love you, that's where it starts. That, that's, the, that's, the simplest, that's the simplest place to start. There's a whole lot of more words that you can say to encourage each other and husbands to, to create that context for your wife to flourish and vice versa. And so much of that is with the spoken word. So say, I love you each day, every day. Do it twice if you want, morning and night. If you're really feeling bold, three times a day. Say it in the morning, text it during the day, say it again at night. Second thing is, do one thing every day, just one thing every day to show that you love your spouse. No matter what's going on, one thing. It could be making breakfast in bed. It could be doing, buying them a gift. Like think of the love languages. Find out what the love language of your spouse is and just do one really simple thing. I remember one, one day I got in the car, I was going to an exam at Bible college and I, on, the, on the dashboard as I sat in the car was a flake chocolate bar with a little, with a little note from Brooke that said, I love you, praying for you today. How simple is that? She knows I love flakes. In summer that would have been a disaster because it just would have melted all over the dashboard. But such a simple thing, such a simple thing. And you can do that no matter what is going on. If you're in a season of tension and arguments and all that sort of thing, you can still do it. You can still do those little simple things. So say it and do it with your actions. And the third thing, and this is the benefit of mixing up weeks. Jace came last week and preached what was meant to be preached today. So I was able to go and listen to every other campus pastor's sermon from last week, which was my sermon today. And I love what Tim Lucas said at the McKenzie campus last week because this, this spoke to me. And I, want to, I think I want to particularly target husbands here. You know, you know those moments where you have thoughts in your mind where you go, oh, I could do that for my wife. She'd love that. You know what I'm talking about. You don't have to nod your head because your wife will see you nodding your head if she's with you and that'll be embarrassing. You know, you have, the, oh, there's a, there's a date, there's a plan for a date I've got in mind or there's a gift I'd buy her. I'm, I'm walking through, oh, she'd love that. But then it disappears. The thought disappears and you don't do it. I've done that a thousand times a thousand. The challenge is, and I've, I've actually done this this week, but I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's a prize for Brooke and you'll blow it. She's not here today, but I've taken one of those thoughts and actually done it, gone from just thinking about it to actually doing it. And can I encourage you, husbands, in the week ahead, when you have a thought like that, maybe off the back of me just saying this, that it doesn't get lost in the ether, but it becomes action it becomes something you do for your wife it's like extra special not the little small thing you do every day but one thing it's out on a date or it's a weekend away or it's something like that it's a gift that you're going to buy to say yes I've thought it now I'm going to do it putting those thoughts into action thank you Tim Lucas so this is the pattern for marriage 
The gospel is the pattern for marriage. Jesus and the church, husband and wife. This is the pattern of how we are to understand marriage and what we're to do in our marriage and where all the practical plans flow from is this relationship that we see in the gospel of Jesus giving himself for the church and then the church giving themselves for Jesus. That's the pattern of marriage. And I just think it's remarkable for us, and we can't miss this because it's so easy to miss this. I could end the sermon there. I could end it with a challenge to husbands and wives to go from here and do better, to go and do better in your marriage, be a better husband, be a better wife. But you know what? That would not be the gospel. That would not be a gospel application right there. That'd be a self-determination application. That'd be a self-righteous application because where is the weight? The weight is on me to be a better husband. The weight is on me to be a better wife. It's remarkable that Paul, when he's thinking about marriage, jumps into the gospel. And what he wants us to understand is not, that, not just that the gospel is the pattern for marriage, but he wants us to understand the gospel is also, and far more importantly, the power for marriage. The gospel is the power for marriage. We can love each other radically and with self-giving love, not because we're any good at it, but because we are loved radically and we are loved with self-giving love that God loves us with, that Jesus loves us with. We need to understand this, that the power for a beautiful marriage comes from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from our determination to be better. 75% of the weddings that I've been involved with has this verse from 1 Corinthians 13. You may have had it at your wedding. It's the famous passage about love. Love is, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. If you had that read out on your wedding day and you sit here today married, I'm sure that the motivation for having that read at your wedding day is this is the sort of love that we have for each other as a couple. This is the love we feel in this moment. This is why we're getting married because we love each other with kindness. We love each other with protection. We love each other in all these ways that are described in this verse. But who can honestly sit here this morning who's been married for any length of time and say, that's exactly how we still love each other. If you can put your hand up, I'm sorry to say you're lying. I mean, just the last, the last phrase, love never fails. I've failed to love Brooke so many times. I've failed to be kind. I've failed to always protect. I've failed, I could go through the list and say, yep, man, I'm a failure all of them. Sometimes I do okay, but most of the time it's probably a failure if it's on me, if it's on me. You can't, you can't look at a passage like this as a checklist in your marriage. You can't look at this passage and say, okay, this is how we need to love each other, right? I'm going to look you in the eye, you're going to look me in the eye, we're going, to, we're going to renew our love for each other and it's going to look like this. No, you can't just imitate this love. You need to be empowered by it. You need to be empowered by it because this is the way that God loves you. And you can't love your spouse like this until you understand and accept that this is how God loves you. God's the only one whose love never fails. God is the only one whose love always hopes, always trusts, never, never lets you down. It's always constant. It's always perfect. It's always self-giving. God is never sinfully self-centered. 
God is never there going, yeah, love me, my people, because it does my ego good. That's not our God. God is always giving. God's love never ends. God's love never fails. You can't love your spouse like this if you're not loved like this. Husbands and wives, what I'm, what I'm about to say next, I reckon is the most crucial element to having a long and beautiful marriage. This is the most crucial element. If you've been tuning out to this point, tune back in just, just for a second. If I can get you back just for a second. Here's what I wanna say, husbands and wives. This is the most crucial thing. Don't expect your spouse to give you what only Jesus can. Don't expect from your spouse what only Jesus can give you. Jesus loves you like this. Jesus loves you in this 1 Corinthians 13 way. And once you know this, you can then love your spouse with supernatural self-giving love. The success of your marriage is not dependent on you. It's dependent on your relationship with Jesus. Two people committed to each other from this base of self-giving love because they are loved with self-giving love. That's a radical marriage. Can we just all stand together? All of us, no matter what your marital status, just let's all stand together as one community of faith. And just in this moment, I want to take us back to our desire and the need for us as a, as a church, as a community of faith to embrace self-giving love. If you're here with your spouse this morning, just grab them by the hand. Just hold hands. Whether it's an intertwined fingers or the old school, one of these, just grab your, grab your hand. And, and I want you to do this no matter what's happening right now in your marriage. Even if things are tense, please just, just let this be a symbol of your reaching out and saying, you're my wife or, or you're my husband and we're, we're holding hands right now. The only way to become a community of faith that Paul envisions here is by accepting and embracing the self-giving love of Jesus. And I want this moment just to be a renewing of that commitment, not, not, to, not to depend on our own strength, but to depend on the self-giving love of Jesus. This is not something we can be determined to do in our own self-strength. We will fail. Our inclination towards sinful self-centeredness is just too strong. Husbands and wives, especially in this moment, like as you're holding your spouse's hand, and my wife's not here this morning, if, if, you, if your husband or wife is not with you because they're away this morning, just imagine holding their hand. If your husband or wife is not with you because they're no longer with us, my prayer is the Holy Spirit administered to you powerfully right now. If your husband and wife or wife is not with you because you're single, I pray the Holy Spirit would be ministering powerfully to you right now. But for all of us, that the Holy Spirit would be filling us with, with this self-giving love and that even as we're hot, for those who are holding their spouse's hand, that it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't primarily be about the hand you're holding physically, but it would primarily be about the hand of Jesus that you're holding as a mark of His self-giving love the mark of the nails through his, through his hand that shows the extent of His love for you. That self-giving love that enables the Holy Spirit to fill you and that enables you to love your spouse supernaturally and with self-giving love.
just as a declaration of that with our mouths and with our hearts. We're going to sing this song together. It's a song about the self-giving love of Jesus, self-giving love of the Father. We're going to sing this together before I have a, a couple more things to say. Um, so let's, uh, let's do that now. Let's express our gratitude and our love for God, His self-giving love by singing this song together. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.